Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. Two years ago, Robert Joseph and I traded our passports for microphones and launched the first pandemic wine webinar series, Real Business of Wine. This year, we finally got to sit down in person for our first real-life interview since 2020. Listen in today as we talk wine thinking, marketing, selling, distributing, labels, branding, oh, and just about anything else that comes our way. Let's get into it. Okay, Robert, we're right back to where we were two years ago. And in fact, I went back to my diary. You and I were in London together two years ago. Then we were supposed to go to Georgia together. And then we were both, we both happened to be going to Provine and all of that got canned. And you and I decided to put our graying hair and tired eyes on YouTube or all of the wine industry to well, see. Well, my graying hair and eyes, yours, yours is fine. That's I a, went gray doing that, that this is true. episode. That's I did true. it publicly. It's all over YouTube. Yes. So thank you for being here with me it's today. I really great. appreciate it. And, and thank a, you for jumping in on my interview with Ricardo Pasqua. It was nice. It was nice to have what felt like the team back together. That was lovely for me. And so it was also, I, really I, I love what the, the Pasquas are doing. And I think that they represent quite a lot of what's happening in, in Italy right now and has been happening for a while. And what I'm seeing now happening in France, which is really exciting. Okay. So we, we've had Vin Expo. We've gotten to walk through all of those busy, busy halls, which each had their own unique personality. Um, it was fascinating for me, I think partially coming out of two years of, of being confined, but also just seeing that from the French perspective, because it's so vastly different to other similar trade shows. Um, you went in, and that's what I want to talk about today. So we all know you as the writer, as Meiningers, as uh, the wine thinker, as the presenter. You know, it is about the thoughts and future-proofing the wine industry, but you own a wine brand. Oh. And, and you are in that space as the owner of a French wine brand. And I, I really want to hear your thoughts on... How have things changed? What were you looking for? Are we going far enough? Is anybody going too far? Are some ideas just full of shit in practice? So kick it down to us. What do you think about what we saw at the next though this year? Well, I think that what we, I, the thing about the French, um, which has always interested me, I lived in France for six years, is the French say, ah, oh, we don't do, we did a revolution, we don't do revolution, we do evolution. Um, things change gradually. And I think that's absolutely untrue. I think what happens in France is that they believe that things are evolving, but every now and then we get such a an evolutionary hiccup, if you like, or jump or leap, that you could call that revolutionary. And that, to me, in maybe two years uh, between French shows, um, that has, has a, an impact. But there have been things that I'm now seeing happening in France 
that certainly were not happening three or four years ago. And the same thing in the past that we saw, which was I remember everyone in France telling me that um, Vin de France, so Vin de France, the idea of blending wine from different regions with the great varieties so unthinkable. In France, appellations are what everything is about. Um, and they, hey, presto, suddenly we have this thing called Van de France, and it is growing, it's growing fast. And um, uh, I know Valérie Peugeot, who runs that uh, organization in France, um, she's had one of the busiest stands at the fair. And it's booming. And the fascinating thing about Van de France is that it's she's got all sorts of names there of people, including producers in Bordeaux and Burgundy and the Rhone and big companies and small companies, all of whom are latching on to a potential of doing something different, not necessarily following the rules, which um, brings me into how I started all of this 16 years ago. Well, hold on, hold on. Before before we get into Le Grand Noir, I have a question about that. So, okay, we've got French wineries that are embracing this. Um, do you think that this is profits? They just found that it was more profitable to go that route. Do you think that they are listening to consumers? Do you think that they want to be unbound by the heritage that has confined us? Like, Internal, external, philosophical. Why do you think that we've got so many people taking this on board now? All and none of the above, I guess. Um, I think that France is a philosophically um, driven country. There was a great moment in a conference. I don't know whether it really happened. It's an apocryphal moment where somebody stood up and from the New World and made the, described what they were doing. And uh, a Frenchman stood up and said, so I understand uh, how what you're doing works in practice, but how does it work in theory? And right. um, the, the, the French model is based on a lot of theorizing and beliefs in, in, in stuff. And that is relevant because people that you would imagine being commercially driven, including French supermarkets, for example, are, are part of that philosophical game. So you had consumers in France wanting to buy varietal wines. Um, there was evidence of that 10 years ago. Um, and the, the, the supermarkets weren't giving it to them because the supermarket buyers didn't really want to believe in it themselves. That um, rosé, oh, rosé is for women and for the summer. Um, so, you know, we don't focus on rosé. And then go back in history, champagne rosé was just the chorus girls. You know, everything is boxed in its little category. And then somebody, somebody works out that, oh, Krug and Dom Perignon seem to be selling their rosé champagne for quite a lot of money. Maybe we could take that seriously. Um, one or two companies were beginning to sell these Van de Cepage varietal wines successfully in France. Maybe that would work, but it takes time. And unless you get um, the disrupt, you know, the, the disruption is going to happen either by a disruptive French uh, business or Frenchman, and there aren't enough of those. There are now more than there were. Generation change, which I'll come back to, um, or it's a foreigner. And so some of the most successful or outsider, if you like. And some of the most successful things happening in French wine have been driven by outsiders of one kind or another. And and in some sense, you are one of them. I mean, you did live in France, but mm -hmm. you are you are an Englishman. You have a brand that is led by three Brits producing French wine for the broad market globally. Mm -hmm. Are you a disruptor? 
Yeah, no, I mean, the reason... Is it a disruptive brand? No, no, we were disruptors before the word disruptor or being disruptive was really commonly used because in 2000 and uh, when we started this 2005, um, I wanted to make, because I didn't know it wouldn't, it wasn't easy to do, I thought, hey, let's go and compete with Mondavi and Hardy's and... Um, all these new world brands, because I'd seen how successful they were in the UK, um, amongst other places. And I thought, and France wasn't doing it. There were very few successful, in fact, including European brands that delivered large volumes consistently of a wine that people could buy and enjoy. And so it's all much more complicated. And there were all these things about when to drink it and how to drink it and how to understand the label. And I thought, could we, why couldn't we do that? Um, and we had no money, and I didn't really understand that you couldn't start a brand like this without lots of money. Um, and so what happened was I talked to Hugh Ryman, who I'd known for a long time, who'd made wine in 17 other countries, I think, and I'd known his skills. I'd given him, as a journalist and an organizer of competitions, I'd given him various prizes or handed over various prizes over the years, so I was a, a fan of what he could do. Uh, and we talked about doing something together over the years, but we talked about maybe making a small little project of what most people think about when we making wine. And we thought this would be fun to do something big. And then I knew um, Kevin Shaw, who was a superstar label designer already working in London for a number of brands outside the UK. So he did Code Siete for Michel Roland, um, and he did Hendrick's Gin, I think it was around that time. And basically, the three of us said, right, we'll pool our talents. Um, the thing I already understood, I'd done a book on wine labels, so I understood the value of packaging and labels, and I knew we couldn't afford to pay anyone to do it. So making the label designer a partner was, was the first stage in the game. Um, we all knew we needed to find the, the production partner. So having a winemaker is fine, but you need vineyards. We didn't have the money to buy vineyards. And in any case, to be honest, the project we had in mind involved um, far more, would involve far more vineyards than we'd ever be able to own. Now, in Australia or in um, states, for example, you would just say, right, I'm going to buy grapes from lots of different places, and you'd get a winery. And you'd... France, you can't do that. There aren't people, there aren't farms selling grapes in the way you see them in the world. Um, on the other hand, what you have is cooperatives, and you have cooperatives uh, like ours with 6,000 hectares of land and 1,200 members and lots and lots of different grapes and um, soils and altitudes and so on, and more importantly, uh, and, and skills and great equipment, but more importantly, uh, an attitude that worked. So the f we, we also wanted to try and do something in Bordeaux. And to be entirely honest, that was a, a nightmare because we never found the people in Bordeaux who had the openness of spirit to try and do something new. Whereas the people we found in Céline Jean d'Alibert in Languedoc were really ready to try something different. But when we started to go through the, 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 the concept of what we were talking about, other French people said, you are mad, you will go bust. This is not how things are done. And the name of the brand, the, the, the Cornwall, the black sheep on the label, was reflective of the fact that we were the odd ones out. We were the, the um, and one of my friends, John Hegarty, who also has a vineyard in the region, his advertising agency had the black sheep as its logo by chance. And his line was, when others zig, 
zag. And that's what we were doing. So you said something, uh, you said, I didn't know it wasn't easy to do. And I actually want to talk about this because this is something we encounter all the time, right? With this romanticized view of wine brand ownership that we're going to do it and it's going to be magical and we're going to have a wonderful lifestyle and we're going to travel and eat and drink without the understanding of how much business is involved in a solid, long-lived enterprise, whether it's the research, the development, the partners, the capital, the evolution. I'm curious if when you're walking through something like VinExpo, do you see younger brands, newer brands that are coming in with better business acumen? Are we learning anything as an industry? Um, yeah, again, yes and no. I think that we now have business, wine business. So you go back to the days when I first started judging wine and looking at wine. An amazing proportion of people making wine hadn't been to winemaking school in those days. They'd learned from their father or whatever. And if he made wine well, they learned that. And if he didn't, they didn't. Um, so now we've got a complete generation who've been to wine school. We've got another subset now who've been to wine business school of some kind, or at least have done something. Learning. It's a subset and it's a small subset. But it's, it exists. And what's interesting is in every region, there are now more people who've got a business eye than would have been the case 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. However, um, you still have a lot of people who've inherited their business, who've got into it for various reasons. So that there's less business acumen than you would see in a place like Australia or California or New Zealand, where many people have borrowed the money or had to raise the capital in recent times and have to have a plan of some kind to get it back. We, when I just said that we didn't know how difficult it would be, one of the advantages that we had was that because scale was, was part of the plan from day one, it was never, let's make a few hundred bottles, a few thousand bottles. It was always, you know, how can we get bottles on wine in supermarkets? That meant thinking that through at day one. So why and why we're still here, why the brand has, has, has gone on to, to succeed as much as it has, was that we went and found distributors right at the beginning. And that's been part of the business. Now, to answer your question, sorry to, to carry on with you, I still think that so many of the exhibitors I'm seeing have been experts still imagine, I make nice wine, I put a nice label on it, somebody's going to come along and buy it. Well, well, hold on. So you said we knew from day one that we had to get our wine on grocery store shelves. Now, we have huge um, shade given in the wine industry to use, you know, kind of like the vernacular of my kids for brands who want to make extreme broad market brands who want mm -hmm. to be on Walmart shelves, who want mm -hmm. to be on Aldi shelves, you know, that they were like, oh, this is not fine wine making. How are, how are you seeing, or are you seeing a difference, a change in this where we're going from sort of, oh, it is all about artisan and fine wine production to, oh, look, actually, we do need to be in broad public spaces in order to be profitable and financially sustainable for a lifetime. I have to be difficult, be careful about this because um, I've lived through this period from the 
when I first got into wine, um, certainly in the UK, I'd be living in France for a bit, but in the 1980s, it's what I would call, I like to call it the summer of love of wine, where we in the UK really discovered wine. It happened in the States a few years later, but it was a moment where there was huge excitement. And actually, when I think about wine in supermarkets, in my romantic vision, it's at a time where there was a real excitement of new wines, new brands, new producers, all sorts of things in those supermarkets. Those supermarkets are, are, to use your word, a shadow or a shape, a shadow of what they were. The the, the range of wines are far less interesting. And to be brutal, I really don't necessarily want to be on those shelves today, or I might might like to be on them, but it's not going to be the the competition I'm sitting against is not as exciting. Um, I think we have seen this polarization in the last five or 10 years, particularly where you've got, on the one hand, um, you've got what is selling, if you like, in broad market, most of which is designed for broad market, but without much passion and imagination in in many cases, Um, and in some cases with lots of that. You've then got the fine wine, um, which is obviously Burgundy's at ludicrous prices and other regions and so on. And then you've got this third area, which is, if you like, the natural um, wines that are not necessarily being bought because they taste better in classic terms, but they're being bought on the values that they're carrying in terms of winemaking and the winemakers. They may taste better for those people who are buying them, they may taste worse. But those are three, um, as I see it, three corners of the triangle. And they're okay, not so necessarily I'm, I'm going to break that down. I'm going to break that down into um, marketing language. What we have is we've got, um, we have prestige brands, right? So that's our fine wine. Um, and we have what you're talking about is we've got uh, purpose-driven brands and we have profit-driven brands. So prestige, purpose, and profit. I'm not saying that this is a Venn diagram where nothing ever overlaps, but um, you know, do you feel like, what, what do you feel like the intersection of those three spaces are? Can you be purposeful and profitable? Can you be purposeful and prestige? I mean, we all know you can be prestige and profitable, so we probably don't have to go down that particular fine wine route. Um, although so, you and I could argue that, so yeah. You see, I don't like having described the polarization. I think it's it's essentially unhealthy and unhelpful. So Gallo, for argument's sake, um, very cleverly is in all of those camps and has got some very smart wines that they, they make from single estates in, in California. They, they know which bit they want to do. Um, in right. The- but well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. But Le Grand Noir, I can say, because I know you and love you, is not Gallo, right? Nope. There, unfortunately, sadly for you, it's not Gallo. So how does a brand that is not one of these just powerhouse brands in wine how do they walk this space between profits, purpose, and prestige? What does a brand like yours uh, prioritize? To come back to your point, no one brand is Gallo because Gallo is an umbrella, if you like. Um, within the sort of my world of, of France, one of the people I admire, who I guess is a competitor, but I have huge admiration for, is Gérard Bertrand. Because Gérard Bertrand is making, on the one hand, he's making rosé that sits alongside our rosé in U.S. supermarkets, beautifully packaged, very nice, 
uh, Provence style, but actually Languedoc rosé, very profitable. But he's also now making a $150 rosé from a single vineyard in Languedoc, um, which is the most expensive rosé in France or possibly the world. And he's got a lot of things in between, including a wine he's making with Bon Jovi. Um, so if you like an, a celebrity wine. Now, all of the, the point I'm trying to make here, which I think is important, is understanding who each wine is for. So back to, to, to Le Grand Roi, um, we have now organic wines within the range. Um, for people who want to buy organic Grand Noir, um, that is something that we know that the distributors and their, their customers want. Now, we're not going to make the entire range organic. On the other hand, saying no to organic isn't necessarily the answer either for us. So it's actually learning from the market, evolving with it, and giving people what either they already know they want or what we feel that they're going to want as the trends change. Do you make mistakes? Yes, and we've made lots of them. I mean, lots and lots. You're um, one of the only people I know who'll talk about them. No, you know, brands don't talk about their um, mistakes. So the first easy mistake we made was calling our first wines, our first white wine is a Chardonnay Viognier. And we put that out onto the market and it didn't work because in 2005, um, in the US, red, red blends and white blends were tiny. And so we, were, we had a Cabernet Syrah, or Shiraz as we called it at the time, and Chardonnay Viognier, and they were over there. Our importers said, actually, if you want to sell Chardonnay, we'll sell that wine, call it Chardonnay. It's 85.15, it's legally Chardonnay. So suddenly now it says Chardonnay on the front, and on the back label we say Chardonnay Viognier. But that was, a, if you like, an initial mistake for the US market. Second um, interesting mistake we made was along the way was in um, packaging because I hate natural corks. Um, we were, our importers said, please put the wine in natural corks. We said, okay, we then went into Noma cork, which was at least more reliable. They said, no, we like natural corks. Our customers want natural corks. And um, then everyone said, hey, let's try screw caps for everything. And yeah, I was really delighted. We put all our wines in screw caps. These are $12 uh, wines, which are the idea of what we're trying to do with our $12 wine, which is important to this whole story, is we're trying to give people a $15 to $25 experience for 10 to $12. So the, the labeling, the, the whole thing is supposed to make them feel that. And the screw cap just wasn't going to cut that. This is, now, anyway, though, we now we this. understand why you're so anti-screw cap. I'm not, sorry. Absolutely not. We use screw caps on our whites and our Pinot Noir, and I love screw caps. But I understand why the consumer who is trying to buy a $25 wine for $15, in, a, in the case of a Cabernet Sauvignon, doesn't want a Cabernet Sauvignon with a screw cap because he's putting it on his table at home in front of people whose only experience of wine is with a, a, a corkscrew product. I don't say a natural cork. And the screw cap looks cheap. So basically, we're not doing him any favors. So we've now gone back. Now we use DM, um, and it's still, it looks like a cork. It behaves like a cork, but he or she still gets to use the screw, the, the corkscrew. So it's actually putting yourself in the shoes of the uh, end user. And then lastly, if you've got mistakes, it is 
the relationships that you have and the, or, or don't have, or the, and the distributors you have and you don't have. So one of the subjects is I, you know, when I'm teaching, uh, giving talks about wine and so on, I often ask people, so tell me what letter D um, is important in wine? And they see them here and they go, oh, Deidesheim, um, Duru, Dao, okay, anything else? And eventually somebody goes, um, Distribution. I'm very lucky if I get anyone to say distribution. They don't even do that. One of the words I've never heard is depletions. Now, depletions is the most boring word in the world, but it's actually what it is, is you manage to sell a container of wine to someone. And you're sitting down drinking your champagne and you've forgotten all about it. And six months later, a year later, somebody says, hey, have these, those guys ordered another container yet or not? And they haven't. Well, the reason they haven't is because the wine is sitting in their warehouse. So to me, one well, of the first things you need to do as a producer is, be keep, is keep track of whether your wine is actually going to people's homes or restaurants and certain being drunk. And that's a bit like being in a restaurant and imagine if you're not noticing the plates coming back from the tables heaped with food, you're not noticing the fact that people aren't enjoying your meals. So it's something that, yeah, I know you and I have discussed this, and it's a big bugaboo for us, is that it's not just distribution, but it's historic distribution, it's balance of power in distribution, it's good communication and distribution, it's clear reporting. Like Distribution is the number one issue that we deal with, with our global clients, because we're so removed from essential data. I mean, whether it's consumer feedback, whether it's consumer data, whether it's depletion information, you know, and, and it is, it is a challenge that sometimes just seems completely unconquerable, because we know we have to have the distribution, right? So what is it going to take? Is it going to be brands dictating new terms of distribution relationships, at which point, who can do that? Is it going to be distribution realizing that there are an awful lot of fairly shitty distributors out there and them actually learning to compete with each other for the value of their services? How do we change this? Because it seems pretty entrenched to me. And I think that it's, it's a very good question. And it actually allows me to move into your territory a little bit, because one of the problems is, is you're relying, if I'm selling wine, we sell wine in 64 countries now. There is no way that any one person or indeed any organization can, can employ enough people to really understand what's happening in Poland, what's happening in Burkina Faso, or you know, what's happening in Brazil. Every one of those markets is different. And so you are reliant generally on what your distributor is telling you. And so basically, if your distributor says, <clears throat> no one in this market likes Viognier, we make a very good Viognier. You accept that he's not going to sell a Viognier for you. And then one day you'll be talking to a competitor and they'll say, hey, you know, in X market, we're doing brilliantly with our Viognier. And you go, hold on, I thought people in that country don't drink Viognier. Our importers told us they don't. And then you've got to go back to the drawing board and find out whether it's just because your competitor is making a better or a different Viognier to yours that suits the market better, or maybe his distributors are better. Now, the one thing that we do have, and that's why we can move into your field, Today, the information is more available. 
you can actually, if you can spend a little bit of time, a little bit of money, and you won't be able to do it globally, but you can say, look. But I is want- it really a little bit of time and a little bit of money? I mean, like, come on, let's face it. Is it a little? Because it's actually a lot. It's uh, a lot of time and uh, it's a lot of money. Um, yes, but it depends. There's a like It's like losing weight or getting fit or doing the arts. There's a gap between doing nothing and really doing it properly. And even doing something is a step towards doing it properly because actually when you do a little bit of something, it's going to give you more of a taste of doing it properly. So I'm, I'm going to actually disagree with that and I'll tell you why. So what we've seen are brands, and this is not exclusive to wine. This is more the size of the brand and the amount of time, effort, and money that they have to invest. Okay, so they're currencies. They do something, what I'm going to unfortunately call half-ass. They do it with a minimum amount of either knowledge or guidance. They invest in it. They get poor returns and they assume that the poor returns are because that particular solution doesn't work. And I think that that is a huge problem for forward momentum. I think it's a problem in any, I think it's always been a problem. You could argue that even 50 years ago, whatever, somebody wasn't advertising their product, wasn't using whatever the advertising tools of the day were available. They placed their first advertisement in a local newspaper or magazine. It didn't work. And some of them stopped advertising. I think it's something that you could argue goes with the territory of leaving your comfort zone and doing something different. However, what I have seen, not just with ourselves, but I've seen it in in other places, wine companies, and our biggest problem is that we don't have a lot of money. We don't have very good margins, and we don't have a lot of money either for research or marketing or any of these things. But if we take the bit of money we've got, um, we put a person on the ground in America. And the person we put on the ground wasn't great, actually. Um, but they, the point about the person on the ground is they were not the salesperson. And their job was to go around talking to customers or potential customers and sounding out the market. Um, and I was talking to another couple of competitors because you meet people at fairs like the next you sit down for a beer, and we'd all been doing the same sort of thing. And we all agreed that it'd be great to have 10 people on the ground in a market the size of America because you really can't scratch the surface. Um, but Having a person there whose job is not to sell wine necessarily, he, he should help to, he or she should help to facilitate sales. But part of their job is to come back to us and say, hey, your Viognier, our Viognier is not doing very well, but our competitors is doing brilliantly. We need to talk to our distributor. So you talk about mistakes. Um, our rosé, which is now doing pretty successfully, we initially, like a lot of people, put it into a clear order glass bottle and it was attractive. But very soon, looking at all the shelves, all the Provence bottles, not all of them, a lot of them are nice. So we said, right, we want to change our bottle shape. And our distributors said, oh, no, 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 we don't need to do that. It takes more room on the space, on the shelf and so on. So we didn't do it for a year or two because we were waiting for them to give us the, the green light to do it. Um, and our guy on the ground said, you know, you really should be doing this. And a year two or three of that process, we said, right, we're doing it. We should have done it on day one. Um, so it is actually <clears throat> a combination of, yes, listen to your distributor rather than listen to no one, but B, um, get other information. So, you know, wearing my other hat with, with miningers, 
um, Wine Business International, one of the things we're trying to do is to give people quick reads online where you can say, I want to know about the Brazilian market or the Polish market and just get something in there. Now, if you if that interests you enough, <clears throat> then maybe to your point, you can go and buy a thousand, ten, two thousand dollar report on that country and do something else. But at least you may know more than nothing. What I'm taking away from that is we have right now a surfate of data coming at us, right? We've got, I, I think, a heavy reliance or belief in quantitative data because that's what we had access to for so long. What I would counter, um, based on what I'm hearing from you, but also just the work that we do, is that social media and the internet, emails, websites, events, you know, we now actually have, even if we are operating in global markets where we can't have tasting rooms and pop-ups and location, we do have access to qualitative data and that we need a better way to gather and to analyze, to read, and then to react to qualitative data. Do you feel like that that's a valid representation of what you're saying? It is totally valid, but the, the big problem is that we tend in this industry, and it's probably true in all industries, to, to um, focus in on the data we like. So if I'm making an orange wine, I'm going to hook onto everybody's report. Anything I read, read anywhere that says orange wine is really taking off in Japan, or London, or whatever. Um, and and, I, and you know, I'll get all six or seven of the right people are saying it's great and it's working and so on. That may or may not actually be reflected in the, the, in the real market. And it may be that, yes, there's a market for orange wine, but there's only market for a dozen of them. And 15 or 20 people have already turned up there with theirs, and I'm going to be number 18. Um, and it's not going to be as easy as the qualitative data made it seem to me because I wasn't actually saying, yes, okay, in Berlin they're drinking orange wine. Are they drinking orange wine in Munich and in Cologne and all these other places? Right. So I think it's, it is quant and qual together, but with a clear view of saying, even if I want people to drink my Viognier, which I do, I've got to accept that my Viognier is a harder sell than my Rosé, which we know both through quantitative and qualitative uh, um, data is a popular sell at the moment. I, I thought that this was something that really stood out for me being at Ben Expo. It's easy for any of us to be in a space like that and to see everyone who's in our section of our hall as our competition, right? Um, and in fact, this is, if we're talking about qual and, and quant data or business insights, this is the space that I notice successful wine brands are leaping into, which is not identifying with other wine brands as their competition. Like they're identifying with other brands in other sectors, you know, it might be beer and it might be spirits, but it might also be that they identify themselves as part of a luxury market or they identify themselves as part of a, a movement or they identify as part of a purpose, right? So they're not a wine brand, they're a purpose-driven brand. Um, 
coming from the experience of being part of a cooperative, like how much is, how much does that purpose matter to Le Grand Noir? And does it? I will be honest and say that in the past, it's always. That's why I can ask you, because I know you will. uh, In the past, it's always mattered because we really love working with the people we're working with. And at, at every level, these are because it's it's actually a collection of cooperatives. It's the manager of each cooperative, and each one is responsible to all the members that they have to deal with. Um, and it's at a very human level. And so we've done things like trying to bring sustainability into the whole business and introducing them to what's happening in New Zealand and elsewhere before possibly anybody else was doing it. And it being a cooperative, we had to have buy-in from the growers. It wasn't a question of the boss saying, hey, everyone's going to do this. We had to actually persuade a lot of people um, who weren't necessarily um, aware of, of the trends and the reasons and so on. So in that sense, we were aware. But I think increasingly today, um, and I have to be very honest, the cooperative wine agriculture in general, but the cooperative wine movement in Europe, which is still responsible for half the wine, it's huge. Nobody really, none of the, the wine writers I know give it a fraction of the, the, the um, awareness it, it deserves. Um, generally, they were bad. If you go back to the 80s and early 90s, the quality was appalling. And the reason that um, my partner, Hugh Ryman, got to work in 17 countries was that retailers in the UK and elsewhere sent people like him in to make wine in cooperatives that were otherwise making it badly. So there is a there's a real background history of, of the cooperative movement not having the reputation and so on. I think the, your, to your point about purpose today, um, whilst an awful lot of people are really focused in on wouldn't it be lovely if all wine was made by little families on their little estates and so on, it doesn't work. Their distribution model, it, some of them can do it, but it's not really scalable across a country like France or Italy, whereas the cooperatives are potentially the strengths of some of those countries. So basically, um, I think today um, we are far more aware of that human level than we were and the, and the purpose of it. And today, to me, sustainability is as much at a human level of all of those families and people who in those villages who actually want to be in the wine world um, as the chemicals and everything else we're putting into the soil. But let's be honest about it. Um, in the future, far more viticulture is going to be done by machine um and because it's not much fun it's all very well people sitting in london and new york imagining these i've actually been out there in those vineyards in january and february and pruning vines and so on you know if there are other things you could be doing with your life you might well want to do them and if there's a nice little machine that can go and do that um the same thing applies to machine harvesting like i get so annoyed when i hear people sort of waxing lyrical about wines to be picked by, by by human beings which human beings you know we haven't got lots of people who are available in august or september um every year who are ready to do that for two or three weeks so you know generally i talked to a, um, an australian the other day and with with, with a somebody a journalist was saying it would you know, use um handpicked uh, hand pickers or pick, pick by hand and they said no we don't we do it by machine and they said well why said, well getting the people they're all cambodians you want your, your grapes picked by hand in australia the chances are they're not going to be australians they're going to do it 
And he said, actually, the machine does it as well. He's selling a $30 or $40 wine that wins trophies. And he said, we've done the tastings, the machine versus the human, human-picked um, wine grapes. They're exactly the same. Now, there are certain styles of wine, there are certain styles of vineyard and so on, where that won't necessarily be the case. But just and this, people won't have heard this because I only heard this a few days ago myself. Until now, machines could only pick on the flat, more or less flat land. Um, but I've been talking to somebody who works in Portugal. We've got some of the steepest vineyards in the world. And there are machines now that will do 40% slopes. And wow. you, know, you have to design the vineyards to accommodate them, of course. But, but if you've ever tried being in those slopes, picking those grapes day after day for two weeks, actually the machine is going to be relevant. So what we're really talking about here is this pushback against the idea that wine is a commodity or wine can be commodified. And hold on, just bear with me on this, because what we don't talk about often enough in the discussion of sustainability is financial sustainability. Mm -hmm. You know, we actually must have better, more sustainable financial models for the global future of our industry. We cannot, we cannot do better. We cannot give more. We cannot pay more. We cannot hire more. We can't market more. We can't distribute more. We can't, you know, grow more if we don't have better financial sustainability models within our industry. And yet the uh, discourse that we see in the industry, it may not be public discourse, is that the more profitable we become, the more of a sellout we are. Can I just pick up, because you used the word that, that I find fascinating, which is commodification. We don't want wine to be a commodity. Wine has always been a commodity. Wine has been a commodity for as many thousands of years as it has existed because essentially people bought, there's lots of images of hundreds and hundreds of barrels of wine. People went out to buy hundreds of barrels of French wine or Rhenish wine or sack or whatever it was. And it didn't have a producer's name on it. It was what was turned. There were some merchants and the merchants sold it, but it was, you bought it and sold it like orange juice or coffee or anything else. Now today, you think, oh, it's not quite like that. It's much better. We have appellations and so on. If you stop and think about it for a moment, the Swedish monopoly every year, or LCBO in Canada, the other monopoly there, they have tenders. You know, we want to buy Cabernet Sauvignon with oak or without oak. That's a commodity. And we want to buy Gervry Chambertin, or we want to buy Chateau Neuf du Pape, or Chablis, or Pinot Grigio. They're all commodities. And when I lived in Burgundy in the 80s, um, there is a fix that was a price per barrel or per litre of each village in Burgundy and Coligny Marchais, Chivry Chambertin, Pomar, they all had a price. It was a price bracket. And essentially the people who made the people who made the highest volumes per hectare, who made more more wine per vine and spent the least money on oak did pretty well out of that because they got the, the minimum of what was a pretty narrow band. And the guy at the other end actually was being penalized. And that's when some of those people, and Burgundy is a great example of this, 
some of those Burgundy producers actually stopped selling their wine to the merchants and started bottling themselves. And so what you have in Burgundy, and this is what a lot of people won't want to hear, is you have brands. Romani Conti is a brand. Um, Armand Rousseau is a brand. And if you like, Le Roi is a supreme brand. Because if I were to buy a Bourgogne Blanc or an Aligoté, which are wines I can buy for, for very few dollars, if it's got a Le Roi label on it, I'm going to pay a huge price because the Loire brand has transcended the rest. So she has, if you like, decommoditized um, the product that is generally still commoditized. Okay, so how many years have you been going to Vin Expo? 105. Um, I seriously <laughs> can remember, I, I, I really can't answer, it'll take too long to work it out, but it was certainly in the 80s, and I actually took part in a TV program, the local TV, I don't know how local or national it was, with the, the head of an expo. And the debate was whether an expo should allow in foreign companies. It was a French fair for essentially for Bordeaux and for the French industry. And ironically, that is what it has gone back to being in Bordeaux. Um, so history, all these years of rocking up to Vin Expo and brands have you seen a change when you walked into that room this year or those four rooms are there more brands in that room i mean I, i'm thinking about that that bordeaux hall that was just unbelievable right you go through the the i guess it's the three other halls the two other halls you walk in and it's like you know I, I, in my head, I think South Coast Plaza um, because I'm a Californian. It's like the South Coast Plaza of wine. There were brands in that room. Are they all big brands? Are small companies become or small small producers becoming brands? Okay, so the two answers to that is there are labels and there are brands, and a brand to me is something that isn't a commodity, and by which I mean. If I go out and buy some coffee, I don't care whose coffee I'm buying or some potatoes. The moment I care about who grew the potatoes, it's left um, being a commodity potato and it's become a branded potato. important thing about brands to me is one, one's got to remember there's a target audience. So those burgundy brands, those burgundy labels may not look like a brand to lots of other people. To anybody who doesn't know about Burgundy, they're just a name and a label. It may well be that that person who only produces a few thousand bottles or cases of wine a year is a strong brand to his target, and he doesn't want and can't go beyond that. However, those are the minority of the picture. So to your point, most of the wines out there are labels. A few of them are brands. And it is very hard to tell which is which unless you actually are right within their little world of who their target audience is. Last thing, I've saved my favorite question for last. This is just fun to talk about. And we did a whole real business of wine on this. Labels. Holy shit. The labels, the, the um, merchandising stands. I mean, I've got picture after picture on my phone because yes, there's still so many of those like old tried and true French labels, but there were some fabulous labels this year. I think that's been, Italy got there first. Um, way, way, when I was doing my book on labels, France was dull as anything. 
um, particularly with beginning. And the thing is, everyone does good labels now. That's the danger. I'm doing work in Moldova. There's lots of great labels on Moldovan wines. Um, having a good label now, you know, it's like having a good singer or musician. Or There's loads and loads of them. How do you stand out? What, to me, is fascinating, apart from the else, we talk about labels, bottle shapes, you know, all bottle the, shapes. And that's yeah. beginning to change. But nobody's really focused on the fact that one region went out on a limb with bottle shapes and hasn't really been following everyone else, but because they're different. And that's Provence. Because until Provence Rose really came along, the only, there were some label games being, sorry, sorry, some bottle shapes that were interesting in Champagne, because you had Dom Perignon and some of the others. So that was a place where you did it. And there's no accident or coincidence that Champagne houses belong to companies that own perfume businesses and spirits businesses. Um, but the rest of the world still went on, and then all we had was the heavier version of the existing bottles, so the bigger Bordeaux bottle. Really. And then suddenly Provence comes along and says, hey, we can do some different stuff. And so Gerard Bertrand um, has got his wonderful, you know, sort of, pyramidal shape and lots of things going mm -hmm. on and the other thing that I, I really one of the things that you, you wonder what i noticed this year an expert in the bordeaux area there were all the bordeaux and burgundy bottles and all those and, and those wines in burgundy bottles were single grape varieties so pure malbec and pure Verde and pure cabinet that's that is revolutionary and five or ten years ago if you'd said to anyone um you know that's what's going to happen. People would have said no. But what was interesting was that at the one of the cooperatives, Univitis, they've got these four, uh, as I said, burgundy bottles, single varieties, very boldly labelled. They produce those at a chateau they own, cooperative owns, which also has its own traditional Bordeaux style, Bordeaux bottle traditional label. The traditional wine is selling for seven euros fifty. The burgundy bottles are thirteen. So that goes yeah. against everything that anyone would have thought. Now, this, I'm be careful about this because I'm not. I that's the if you like the rack rate. That's the price they're asking. I have no way of knowing how well those wines are selling, how they're being accepted in the market, sure. and so on. But it is a fact. And in terms of to, to come back to what we're doing, not in terms of labels, but it kind of is. Um, Ninety. 8% of what we do at the Renoir is IGP, Van der Peek. We have a small amount of reserve, which is AOP, AOC, which um, under the longer dot label. Um, and that's been working very well. Four years ago, uh, Monoprix, who are one of the more dynamic French um, retailers, anyone in Britain knows Waitrose, they will sell the more interesting wines at a supermarket, supermarket level, um, came along to us and said, we like your Cabernet, your Cabernet Syrah. We'd like to buy it. We, we're happy with your price. There's only one request. Will you take the IGP off and put Vin de France on? Vin de France is, in theory, a lesser appellation. It's the lowest level, in theory, of the vote. And we said, yeah, sure. You know, if you want to buy it, they've been buying it. Our, my wine is on sale in every monoprix in France with a, with a wine range. And we've been in there for four years. So something's working. We are one of their least expensive Vin de France in that in that right. range. We are selling for four euros ninety five, which in France is not that cheap for the sort of daily drinking sort of 
mid-range mm-hmm. wine. You can get a lot of Appalachian longer dot wines for, for less than that. So why is our wine selling? Why did they ask for that? And why is our wine selling as a Van de France? Because Van de France is now a disruptive um, segment, if you like, within the market, because so many people who are trying to make wine doesn't fit into the old model. They're trying to make an orange wine, a natural wine, a rosé at a place that doesn't make rosé, a wine with a bit of uh, residual sugar that doesn't have it. The whole range of wines that don't fit within the old model. And what they're doing is to say, okay, I'll call that Van de France. So Van de France is growing within France, and it's growing. It was originally designed as an export model. It's really taking off, and we're actually working along with it. Now, I'll put Van de France on our wines in markets that want it. We'll go whatever designation works, but it shows how things are changing and how, you know, when we were started, we were, we were the black sheep. I think now there are a lot more black sheep out there along with us. And the good news... You were the OG. You were the original Grand Noir. We were the original ones. And I think what I'm pleased to say in a way is that, um, yes, it's going to be tougher for us to keep being a bit different, but it's better for consumers because they're going to get more experiences. That's a really lovely way to wrap this up, actually, because the thing that you and I talk about whenever we talk about wine business, which we talk about it all the time, whether it's recorded or not, is we have to be more consumer facing. We got to love our people more, you know, and if we love our people more, it grows our brands, our labels, our businesses, our regions. So thank you. Thank you. It's great to do this. It's more for the city. Love you dearly. It's so nice to see your face. Um, we, we did so many of these on video and the video won't go out, but as always, I appreciate your, your extreme cleverness. I think we need to just make this a series. Like every couple months we do an interview with Robert on what are the super awesome things that you're thinking about mm-hmm. right now? And it can be like our real business of wine part two for the Italian wine. podcast. It's a deal. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening in today and a very special thank you to my friend, Robert Joseph. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.